Ladies and gentlemen, the tiny DevOps guy. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Tiny DevOps Podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Hall, and today we're talking about Kubernetes. Uh, is Kubernetes right for your team, your small team? Hopefully, my guest, James McShane, can help shed light on that. James, welcome to the show. Thank you, Jonathan. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. Great. Tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, what you do, and maybe why you know anything about Kubernetes. Yeah, so I am a I'm an engineer. I've been working with Kubernetes for the past six years. I'm the director of consulting at a small Kubernetes-focused uh, consulting and training shop. So I've been I've been focused on Kubernetes for a long time in my career and uh, worked with it in a, in a bunch of different environments. So really glad to be talking about this today with you. Great. Uh, you say a bunch of environments, uh, really high level. What size environments? Like, what's the smallest cluster and what's the largest you've used? I mean, the smallest cluster I've, you know, I've deployed MicroKates instances to run software on, you know, drones and small devices up to, um, you know, I've seen multi-hundred node clusters running huge data processing workloads. So, you know, spans the gambit of, of the different workloads you can put out yeah. there. Great. Well, of course, the audience for this show is usually small teams, um, 20 engineers or fewer or something like that. Um, so I'd, I'd really like to explore, uh, you know, does when or if Kubernetes makes sense for teams like that. If anybody has been living under a rock for the last six to 10 years, and they don't really know what Kubernetes solves, maybe you want to just give an introduction to what Kubernetes is and the problems it tries to solve for us. Right, so Kubernetes at you know its interaction level, right, is an API that allows you to very easily orchestrate container technologies across a distributed system, right? So it's very easy to um, to take an application, put it in a container, and run that application in a way where you can declare what you want, right? It's a, it's declarative orchestration of of these containerized applications. So you say this is how I want my application to be running. Kubernetes goes out and it does that for you through its its deployment model, right? So it, it takes that process, it schedules it on uh, on its compute node, and and executes that in, in the way that you've outlined. So um, that that allows you to really easily stand up workloads and get those things running, especially for stateless applications. And um, you know, there's a bunch of complexity that built that gets built in that we can talk about today. Um, but you know, at at its core, Kubernetes is about orchestrating. Uh, containerized applications. Okay, so uh, to try to make that a little bit more tangible, maybe for someone, uh, if you're struggling with the uh, the monotony of maintaining EC2 instances, for example, or uh, maybe physical servers, you know, you're tired of installing physical servers and fixing them when the hard drive crashes and stuff like that. Kubernetes can help with these some of these sorts of things. Is that right? Absolutely. And, you know, it, it makes it very easy to run your application the same way across multiple environments, right? I take this application, I package it up, and then I take that package and it's it's running the same way on my machine. It's running the same, you know, that same container image on, you know, in your dev environment. And then you push that up to the production environment and you're confident that it's, it's that same application that you built um, in your build pipeline and that's showing up in each of those environments. So uh, how do you think we should best tackle the question of 
who should use Kubernetes? Uh, I mean, I, I can think of several angles here, but maybe you have some thoughts on how to tackle this. So my, my thought about this at the start, right, is that choosing Kubernetes means that you're choosing a set of problems that you have to be able to solve, right? There, there's nothing, there's no like magic DevOps, you know, fairy dust, right? You, you can't just, you know, oh, you don't shucks. just, <laughs> right? It, it would be wonderful if, you know, you, you wake up one day, you find the DevOps fairy dust and, and everything is perfect, right? You, you no longer have any toil, right? Um, but I think one, one of the things for small teams to realize is that by choosing Kubernetes, you're choosing a small set of bounded problems. And I'd love to talk through some of those, you know, every choice is, is a set of trade-offs, right? And, and I'd love to get into some of those trade-offs that you're making with, with Kubernetes, if that makes sense to you. Definitely, yes. So I, I think the first thing to think about when we, when we come to, you know, okay, I'm a small team, I'm considering Kubernetes. The first question is about, you know, your application, your architectural match for an environment like, like Kubernetes. You have to understand that, you know, there is a certain level of capability for uh, in Kubernetes when it comes to the types of applications that can be running out here. And the key thing that I'm thinking about right now is state, right? State is that, that key aspect of applications. You have to understand what is stateful in your, in your application architecture and how do I ensure that that state is appropriately maintained um, across failure and across um, you know, potentially multiple regions and things like that. Um, do you have thoughts about where, you know, where, where would teams that, that are listening to this podcast be, be uh, putting the state of their applications when they're, um, when they're thinking about this? Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't honestly know the answer. I mean, I, I, I can guess uh, from some of the clients I've worked with that uh, fit the, the profile of this, this podcast. Uh, I'm sure many are using MySQL or, or similar. Um, uh, yeah, that's probably the most common answer I see um, at, at the sort of scale I'm, I'm working at. I see Redis for, fairly often. Um, I've seen a few other odds and ends, uh, message queues, and, and uh, yeah, I don't know, different things like that. Right. No, and that's I, I think that's uh, that's a great place to start with Kubernetes as well, because if you have a you know, you've made if you've made good, boring choices that are working for like, I'm not calling MySQL boring or Postgres boring. I'm saying it, those are those are the baseline. Right. And, and it's a great baseline to build off of. And you can build you can build applications really well on top of that. If you've got your if you've got your data layer layer really solidly uh, architected and, and maintained. Right. And so when we're thinking about a cloud environment, you know, when I approach, you know, Kubernetes, uh, Kubernetes deployment for a small team like this, I, you know, the first thing you do is you, you separate that data layer out and you put that in, in a cloud service or, or some other, other layer, because that is not the first, you know, challenge you want to tackle in a Kubernetes environment. So we, we move, you know, have, have uh, Postgres running in, you know, an RDS or cloud SQL or something like that, right. Where, um, where you've got, You've got someone else maintaining that for you, and then now your compute environment, right? You start with your with your stateless web applications because that that is really the easiest way to, you know, start into a Kubernetes environment and get your applications up and running quickly. Um, you know, we can. That's uh, I, I think it's just especially for a team that doesn't know Kubernetes, right? That. Um, take, tackling additional challenges of you know of state maintenance is really um, a place where where you're looking for failure really early on, right? You're, you're um, 
And so th there's a when we the first question you have to ask when you come to a Kubernetes environment is do we have do we have like an application architectural match for um, for deploying the applica uh, applications out there, right? It could be that you have a have a web service that re you know receives requests infrequently, right? And I would say for a small team, those things are way more a match for you know putting in lambdas, cloud functions, or something like that, right? Though those types of services don't need you know long running container execution environments, right? But if you start to have a place have things where you need to scale those stateless services, you need to start to address, you know, your, your, your team is growing. You need to be able to deploy multiple services that or that interact with one another. That's where Kubernetes starts to uh, really give you those benefits of, you know, the, the network layer and um, some of the, those capabilities of or of, that come with orchestration software. Let's, let's talk a little bit about, um, like at a, at a high level, I have an, a kind of an idea in my mind, and we'll flesh it out a little bit, of the sorts of problems that Kubernetes is good at solving. And it, just for example, um, it's great at uh, rolling upgrades, uh, which, of course, EC2 does that for you also. Um, it's great at uh, uh, load balancing and um, and auto scaling, which of course I guess EC2 with Elastic Beanstalk can do, but um, you know, so, so th these are the sorts of things I, I like to think of that, that Kubernetes is great at solving these sorts of problems. Uh, what are some others? And in, in uh, like, I, what I'm what I'm trying to get at is, if you don't have these problems, you can stop listening now. <laughs> yeah, definitely. You know, I, I think. <laughs> I think but please Kubernetes, keep listening because yeah. it's still interesting. <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. No, I mean there, there. I think there are a set of problems where it makes sense to just say, like, you know, Kubernetes isn't right for me at this point, right? Mm -hmm. But, but you know, one of the nice things that Kubernetes does is you have this consistent declarative API for declaring. Okay, not just like I want this application to run and this version of my application to run, but also that configuration management aspect as well, right? You, you've talked about okay, load balancing, Kubernetes services, and things like that, and rolling upgrades, those are both, you know, things that Kubernetes does very naturally out of the box for you. But that configuration aspect as well of, uh, you know, config maps and secrets and making those available to your applications and, you know, running, having that configuration aspect separate from the management of your application is, uh, is far easier than, let's say you're managing, you know, EC2 instances and you need to have a file in the file system or some, you know, maybe some instance metadata that you're that you're grabbing, right? Config maps are, are far easier to reason about. They're far easier to you know update and understand what's what's going on with your application. And um, I, I think that um, that language for declaring configuration is is really useful and helpful for a lot of the ways that people develop applications this day these days. So um, you know one of the next parts about Kubernetes is making it easy to understand the scope of your entire application deployment, right? When you're thinking about, you know, EC2s or Elastic Beanstalk, right? You're, you know, AWS is managing those things for you. They're scaling up the nodes and, and you use AWS to understand your, your um, you know, the full scope of your applications, right? You see the instance list and things like that. With, with Kubernetes, you can query across all these different parameters and, you know, with labels and things like that, right? You know, your compute environment because you can see the nodes that you're running on. You know your you know different segregations of your applications by querying across namespaces, 
querying labels, right? That that type of it, it does give you an organizational framework for um, building up kind of a a catalog of how your application works, and and it's very natural within Kubernetes to say, okay, I'm going to divide, you know, this set of services is one is one piece of functionality. I'm going to put that in a namespace. I'm going to have these labels that allow me to operate on you know that part of my application architecture. Um, so um, I think that's where we, we you know multi-tenant Kubernetes is a different problem. But when we talk about like multi-team or multi-application deployment within a single team, you know the the Kubernetes framework for just categorizing and organizing your your resources and querying on those makes it really easy to say to understand what you have deployed and what your application actually looks like when it's in its execution environment. You keep talking about services, so let's talk about that a little bit. Um, does it ever make sense to use Kubernetes if you only have a single service? If you're doing a, I, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna show my age here, but if you have like a, a LAMP stack or, or, or the modern equivalent, is Kubernetes ever the right fit or is that just silly? Ah, man, I, I don't know that I've, <laughs> I'll say I haven't seen something like that. As uh, you know, I've got my I've got my single application that's that's running. You know, there, there's lots of ways that I've seen that successful outside of Kubernetes. So yeah. let let I, I wouldn't say that that wouldn't be I wouldn't want to take on the set of challenges that Kubernetes provides if you've got just a single application. You know, a single stack like that. Uh -huh. Right. You, um, you know, the Kubernetes really shines when you start to when you're operating things together. Right mm -hmm. when you you're putting those pieces together of uh, maybe I you know I have multiple pieces of this multiple services that orchestrate here I need to you know load balance between them I need to um, I need to do some of the things that Kubernetes provides in terms of you know potentially getting traffic in on ingress and splitting that traffic right those 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 kind of capabilities don't aren't things that you're concerned about with a with a, a single lamp stack right that that kind of rolling deployment capability is kind of the own and configuration management is like the the only benefit you're getting and there's a lot of other problems right we have we we have to start talking about like the patching life cycle and image maintenance and all those other like all those other things that you have to take on if you have just a single stack right yeah. um, so there there is a level of complexity you have to understand when you're when you're making that choice right is it is there a rule of thumb you like to use for like once your application reaches a certain number of services or a certain number of instances or something then the the, the needle starts to tip towards kubernetes you know i'm going to be a great consultant here and say this this is where it always depends right yeah. i i guess the the rule of thumb that you'd have to look at is what is the what is the pain level of managing that n plus one service right how much how much pain are you taking on by saying I want to add this new service in my environment, right? Do I have to go out and update, you know, ten sets of configuration? I have to have to roll all these things. Where, whereas in in Kubernetes, if I build a nice, you know, deployment process, you know, point a service URL in a configuration and pick that up, right? That's a place where, you know, that n plus one starts to become really easy in Kubernetes, and it can potentially be very, you know, very challenging in a, in a place where you don't have those orchestration capabilities available to you. There, there is a point, uh, but that number is going to depend on, you know, first of all, right, the teams, the teams' capabilities, right. You, you have to, you have to figure out um, when you want to take on that learning, learning curve. If your team has experience in a Kubernetes environment, then that, that number I think is far lower because, because Kubernetes provides that 
that automation out of the box for you, right? There, there's there's just that that orchestration of of everything across the stack of network, compute, and you know configuration. All those things together are are helpful, right? And uh, it's just a matter of figuring out, you know, when do you want to when do you want to start to accept the you know the set of challenges that Kubernetes provides um, in in exchange for the that ease of management and ease of deployment, right? Let's let's talk a little bit then about uh, about the team that's going to be managing this. Uh, you, you said you know if if the team already has Kubernetes experience, that number can be lower. What does it take to? I mean, what's the learning curve uh, to get started with Kubernetes? If you have zero experience, maybe you maybe you have AWS experience, EC2 or something. Is it a weekend job or or is it bigger than that to to start? being productive with Kubernetes? Well, again, I think that that goes back to your architectural match, right? If you take on some very easy challenges with Kubernetes of, hey, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to deploy these five or six stateless applications into a Kubernetes environment and get them talking to one another and potentially external queues or databases, uh, then that can be a, a very short effort to get those things started up, right? The base set of resources of you know, deployments, services, ingress, um, that's both, you know, explained on the internet, you know, I mean, you can start really well with the Kubernetes documentation, you can find a bunch of great resources on the internet, just when it comes to that kind of base level starting out that gives you, it gives you a really good starting point, right? Of I'm going to deploy this application, I will, you know, it'll be this many replicas, I will network it with a service, I'll put an ingress controller in front of it. Um, you know, with with the cloud providers providing a very simple you know way to get started with Kubernetes, right? Each one of those services, um, you know, from the major cloud providers, you can get started up in a few minutes. You can you can deploy, you can get images deployed in there very quickly. Um, and and if you're if you're running simple applications, it you know you you can get started with that very quickly. It's just a question of you know when you when you get into that environment, like. What kind of what what's your what's your next step after you got that first deployment in there, right? I, I think the the day two things are far more challenging than day one, right? I can I can get an application deployed in Kubernetes on a team that's never seen Kubernetes on day one, right? But the problems come in when you have to say and and I can have that thing, you know, updating and pushing new versions and changing its configuration, right? That, that's, that's kind of the, the straightforward stuff. But then now we, now we take on the second level of complexity. Like, do you want it to be auto-scaling? Now, do you want it just image auto-scaling or do you want your nodes to auto-scale as well, right? That's something that each one of the cloud providers is going to have a different answer for, right? You have to start to know that like, okay, Azure in its Kubernetes provider has auto-scaling built into the parameters of the API server when you um, when you create the AKS cluster. Whereas in EC2, you have to deploy a provider to your cluster that would do that auto-scaler for you. And and then you have to you have to set the parameters so that you're gonna get the nodes that you want when your application scales up, right? And that's just that's one example of a direction that you can go in. And there's but you you have to understand the provider you're using, you have to understand the parameters you select for that, um, so it's it, you can get deep very quickly when you know you pick a small slice of functionality you want to you want to you know select, and now you've got it you've got to get into your implementation you have to get into 
the parameters that are available to you. You have to get into how that interacts with your application. It, it gets, you know, it can get hairy very quickly um, when you get to that, that second level of challenges in Kubernetes. So would your, would you advise a team with no Kubernetes experience to take it on or should they hire that ex that expertise? Well, obviously they should hire your, your firm, but <laughs> no, 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 no. I, I, I think, you know, I, I started, I started Kubernetes myself with, uh, with a small team that had never done, done this back in 2016. Right. And, and there, I mean, I, I had a great learning experience in there working with, uh, we working with a team that, had not done this. We we built out a POC initially that was, you know, selected by our company to to go run into production, and, um, you know, we did end up bringing in some people to help us out for a short term, right? We we had a vendor for our Kubernetes implementation and brought them in to help us out to to go from that point of a POC to to moving into production. But that's that's not, um, you know, that that's not necessary at all. I I think there's um, I think there's ways to make good, easy choices at the start of your Kubernetes implementation, right? There's there's ways to say I'm going to um, I'm going to do the right things first, which is I'm going to know how my application is managed to these different environments, right? That's that's a really important question you have to answer first, and I think that that's not a that's not a question you bring in like people externally for because it's a it's a business context question, right? How does my application need to manage its updates, right? And so that's gonna that's gonna inform your you know container build and image tagging lifecycle. That's gonna inform your environment management of Kubernetes, right? Are you going to do you know a single cluster that has you know dev and prod in it? I that that might be how you start out, but right that's that's probably not where you're gonna get to even when you you know when you initially launch on Kubernetes. And you know it's become so easy to manage clusters nowadays that you're probably going to have multiple clusters. You're going to want to think about how does my application move from a dev environment to a prod environment, and and so your your question was how like do I advise small teams to take this on? Is I think there are I, I talk I mentioned this a lot right there there are trade offs with Kubernetes, but there is a lot of mind share in the community of of great you know excellent community resources of getting you off the ground and getting you running with Kubernetes. The place where you bring in people with experience is when you've decided to tackle, like, really, you've decided to really invest in this area, right? I want to build on top of the Kubernetes capabilities that come from, you know, the reconciliation that it gives me in a controller, or the, um, I want to orchestrate across multiple environments or, you know, multiple regions, multiple clouds. I want to, you know, move my application in this way, um, I, or I want to build out like, uh, you know, I want to orchestrate my data center, right? You had talked about physical, you know, managing physical machines. Well, Kubernetes is is becoming far more ubiquitous in that environment as well. Um, there's there's some vendors that, we, that we're talking with who use Kubernetes to make their data center implementations work really well for customers and, and make it really easy for people to go from, you know, you know, a, a bare bones data center, you know, metal implementation to something that's really easy to get started with. So it's, um, I think the, the mind share in the community and the capabilities that, that, that environment, you know, that, that the Kubernetes API provides for you are strong enough to say, I, I'm going to take on some of these, these challenges in a Kubernetes specific context, because I'm getting these benefits of, you know, configuration management, uh, easy deployment, 
easy routing, like, and, and good ways to declare how I want things to be operating, right? Not just from a compute perspective, but from a from a network security perspective, a, a node security perspective, right? There, there's there there are those those kind of features in there that say I can know about how my application is running because I can ask the API server what's going on, and that's really and that's really helpful. I, I get a sense you probably felt it too that this, the community at large kind of has a love hate relationship with Kubernetes. <laughs> There's, there's some people, I, I think you're one of them. I, I think I'm one of them that really enjoy working with Kubernetes. Then you also get these, uh, I, I, I'm, I guess there's some haters, but there's also some who just think it's just too complex for what it provides. Where does this come from? Uh, and, and how do you address somebody who's, who's ignorant to the, to, the, to the debate? How do you explain it to them so that they can make, hopefully make a useful decision? This is funny. I've, I've got a note here in my in my uh, notes that says, "Have you ever seen the CNCF landscape?" Like, I mean that that image that image just evokes that that thought of oh, oh my goodness, like I, you know you have to zoom into it to see these uh, projects or companies' names that are on that thing. And so there, I think part of the challenge is that this is you know teams that take on it's the it's the kind of variety of application architectures that are out there in the world right think about the kind of the scope and level of the types of applications that kubernetes is trying to address right in 2016 2017 you know there there was a ton a ton of talk about you know keep state off kubernetes and you know people still advise you to do that if you're starting out with kubernetes in 2022 but there has been so much investment in you know, stateful applications running those really well in Kubernetes, and that's a whole framework of you know solutions and applications. Right there's there's the you know Valero model of you know backing up your your configure your state of your cluster. There's the um, you know I think about the uh, Vitesse, the orchestrated my orchestrated MySQL on Kubernetes, and there are companies that have built their entire you know state management layer on Kubernetes using that that product, but you know, so when once you get deep in any one of these areas, you, you you can see like it's not a problem of Kubernetes. It's just it's the way that in, the industry deploys applications writ large, right? There, Kubernetes is trying to be a generic orchestration platform for all of these things, which means you have to start getting into the depths of network or you know the the kernel networking, right? I I uh, worked very deeply with uh, the Cilium project. Um, and some of their uh, layer seven network capabilities. And the kind of like network and kernel programming that they do is very deep and very specific to that solution that they're offering. And if you've like, that's just, a, that's just one slice of even just the Cilium product. And, and that's, that slice happens everywhere you go in terms of application architectures. And so I think that that's the reason that I'm like, that I'm so pro Kubernetes in the end is that it's trying to be generic. It's not trying to solve all of the problems itself. It's trying to provide a platform where those where someone can go out and solve those problems and say, here's a product that can address you know this very specific application concern. So, I think your initial question. Sorry, we we diverged a little right. bit from it, right? But 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 you know, there's 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 kind of there's a couple camps when it comes to Kubernetes. Yeah. And in, and in the end, the 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 question that I have is, can you build complex applications successfully on Kubernetes. And the answer that I've seen over and over again is, yes, you can. And you have to, you have to pick the right 
set of problems that you're going to tackle because <laughs> you start to get you start to expand those those questions and it gets really it gets really hard to say I'm getting something out the door which is the bottom line right that's what we're all trying to do of course yeah what are some of the most common mistakes that you see beginners make uh, with Kubernetes? You talked about stateful applications. Maybe that's one of them. You know, I, I think the messaging about that has been has been good. I, I, I don't see too many folks um, starting with, with stateful applications in Kubernetes. So I, I wouldn't say that's the most common mistake. You know, I think one of the things that happens very, uh, very quickly in a, in a Kubernetes deployment is that it becomes this... Um, trash can is the wrong word, but like this dumping ground, right? Like I'm, oh, here, I've got, I'm going to sprinkle, you know, this deployment here. I'm going to, you know, this is going to go over here. This is going to go over here. And very quickly, it's like this cluster is fully resourced. You know, my CPU limits are, you know, my, my, all my CPU requests are taken up. I, and I can't deploy anything else to this cluster, but oh, at the same time, my nodes are running at, you know, 8% CPU and 5% memory, and I can't put another thing on there. That is absolutely the most common thing that that I see beginning teams uh, do in a Kubernetes environment. It's like, okay, yes, I wanted to, you know, request two gigs of memory and three cores for myself. And <laughs> then it's like, oh, wait, my application isn't actually using this. So, okay. you know, there are there's two ways to tackle that, right? There are tools that help you solve this. Um, I have a colleague who uh, has actually worked very closely with the Vertical Pod Autoscaler project, and you know that that's a great one uh, that's tackling that specific project pro problem because it, um, you know, it automatically detects what resources is your application actually using and and scale and provides recommendations to how that should how you should be using that. But I think it's a, it's a bigger problem of process and like actually you know sharing that information with your broader with the team that's utilizing the kubernetes cluster right you you know everyone if everyone has their own namespace and everyone has to you know deploy their own prometheus instance in there and deploy their own you know you can you can start to have a cluster where you you've got so much stuff repeated in there you've got so um, you have so many deployments that you're not sure exactly what's going on and that's where you have to, like Kubernetes provides you this capability of, um, you know, infrastructure as code, declarative, you know, your declaring your application as code. And you've got to utilize that, right? You can't just say, I've got a bunch of YAMLs now. Everything is great, right? Um, you've got to say, okay, this is my environment management technique. This is, the, these are the resource limits that I'm setting. These are my, you know, maybe there's defaults that you have out in the, in the uh, clusters um, that, that are being applied. Um, and you have to have a good way of reviewing that consistently, um, whether it's a, um, you know, there's, there's open source projects, you know, let's say like the, the D scheduler is a great one. Um, there's, um, for, for node image, like rearrangement, there's, uh, you know, vertical pod autoscaler, like I mentioned, but you have to, you have to make sure that you, you take that capability of declaring your infrastructure and make sure that actually maps to what's out there, right? Because I can have a bunch of YAMLs in a repository, and maybe that doesn't even reflect the actual state of the cluster because I haven't applied the updates, or I, you know, someone deployed something out to that cluster and it wasn't reflected in the code itself. So um, there's lots of ways to lose lose that map between you know what I expect and what's actually out there. So um, 
you got to keep a handle on that. And that's where projects like, you know, I mean, obviously like building Helm charts, uh, projects like Argo CD to automatically roll that stuff out to clusters, all, all that, that life cycle of Kubernetes, you know, deployment capabilities and tools are, are all built for uh, just that purpose, right? To know that I'm going to make I'm going to make a change to my YAML. I'm going to make a I'm going to update my image, and I'm going to know where that is in its deployment lifecycle, and I'm I'm going to know what clusters has this been applied to, what clusters hasn't hasn't it been applied to. Um, but yeah, that that untenable cluster is absolutely the most common uh, most common problem that I see out there. All right, how would you say uh, price figures into the to the Kubernetes uh, equation? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, we uh, my my firm worked closely with a with a company that was uh, um, that that was price sensitive because they they did a great job tracking things and saw that their 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 uh, billing had increased somewhat dramatically, and so it's it's a problem that I've seen tackled well. Um, you can do you know obviously we've talked about uh, the autoscaler capabilities we talked about you know that this idea of resource management and all that Th those are all important when it comes to the cost uh, cost story but in the end it's it's bigger than that because you have to um, you, when it comes to like the cloud provider kubernetes implementations you have to understand what that base level of cost is like per cluster um, for example in I'll just give you an example that I, I know well because I've dealt with it is that in Azure, there's no uh, there's no per cluster costs in the base uh, base AKS service. But you have to run a default node group of with a node of a certain size for the um, for the system node pool. And um, and that's going to be there and you can put other resources on it. But that's just that's a base level of cost. You're not going to scale that cost down to zero. But then at, at the same time, now now we think about scaling up, right? You have to, when it comes to scaling up, it's not as simple as saying, oh yeah, my my node, my cost uh, capabilities are going to scale exactly with my resource usage, right? Because you have to tune those parameters for, you know, how are things going to scale, right? There's there's a bunch of different projects that are trying to address this problem, right? The the Keda project allows you to really closely tie the scaling of your application to specific metrics. Um, whereas, you know, a horizontal pod autoscaler is going to be right. I mean, horizontal pod autoscaler can depend on specific metrics, but by default out of the box is just a based off of the CPU, uh, utilization of a pod, right? Um, so you have to build, you have to build autoscaling. That's going to be in line with how your application needs to grow with respect to its, uh, you know, with, with its compute needs, right? So. You know, when it when it comes to when it comes to cost management, you you just have to be aware of the the types the the allocation of compute that you need in your Kubernetes environment. This is where it can be very effective in you know cloud provider consumption if you need like really hefty machines for short term processing, right? That this is a great use case for Kubernetes in a in a team that maybe doesn't have stateless applications, but it has you know jobs that spin up in a short term and and spin those things down on, you know, maybe large scale processing units or something like that, right? That's where that's where a Kubernetes can be really successful in terms of cost management because you can you can set up node selectors and taints and tolerations to say, okay, I can have in most implementations nowadays, I can say, you know, my GPU worker pool is going to scale to zero and it's only going to show up when I need when I need that compute. 
And that, that's a very effective use of cloud provider resources. Whereas, you know, and, and then uh, when it comes to when it comes to stateless applications that are just scaling with respect to, you know, requests or, uh, you know, utilization, things like that, that I, I think the biggest thing we've seen from the cost management perspective is, you know, having a good understanding of what's in the cluster and what what you're actually putting in the Kubernetes environment is the biggest win you can have in a cost man management perspective. Like, yes, when you get down when you get get down the road, you can really finely tune that scaling up and down. Um, but you can't do that well unless you know you know that allocation level. You know that you actually need new nodes, and you're not just getting a getting yourself a new node when your existing you know worker nodes have you know, like I said, like that 5% CPU and 10% memory utilization, right? Uh, doing doing that stuff well early on will help you manage costs as your application grows and your utilization grows. If you could no longer use Kubernetes, what would you miss the most? Oh man, that that declarative API for for saying, you know, this is this is what I want to be running for my compute. And it, it just makes it's it's just such a a base level of like how I think about applications these days is you know okay I have a deployment I for the compute I have a service for the networking I have an ingress for for bringing traffic in it's just that those those simple declarations make it so easy to express how my application is working and then see see that show up right I can I can apply you know I can you know, Helm install or KubeCuttle apply and see that show up on the other end um, all with a simple set of calls. It's just, um, it's, the, it's the thing that I like the most about deploying applications on, on Kubernetes. That first team that I worked with uh, back in 2016, we we migrated that a huge uh, Java EE implementation. I won't say which one, just out of, you know, <laughs> kindness. But, you know, a, a huge Java enterprise stack that you know you had to log into a console and you would you know you could see the versions of the applications because we had put it as a specific app, uh, annotation you couldn't see anything about like you had to go navigate down to see like okay here are the jars that we have active right now and it was just oh man I, that, you know we you know there's plenty of other good good options now you know lambdas and things like that that, that you could mm -hmm. do but man that's the that's the way that I, I that's the thing that i compare it to and so All right. uh, yeah <laughs> uh, i have a two-part question here um let's let's start with uh, we've been talking about teams so let's start with that version of the question how should a team get started if they're interested in in adopting kubernetes or maybe just experimenting with it before they make the full commitment how do you get started well, I, I think in terms of, of getting started, right? You the prerequisite is that you have your applications uh, running in containers, right? So you've got to make sure that you've got your um, got your applications containerized. You can run those things in in, uh, uh, in Docker or something something like that. And you know, maybe even maybe if, as you're starting your journey, maybe you have EC2s and you you deploy your applications in Docker on EC2 as a starting point, right? To to then take that next step into into Kubernetes. So then once you have your application containerized, um, you know, if you're just getting started, you're just learning Kubernetes, you know, use those cloud provider implementations, you know, wherever, wherever you are and spin one of those things up 
and get a you know get your deployment out there and get your application running in a Kubernetes environment, right? That's that that is something that you can do, you know. You know, if you've built your application to a container, you can get a Kubernetes cluster up and you can get your application running very quickly. And so you the the steps to that are, you know, you'll you'll want to get an ingress controller uh, deployed. I would say if you're getting started, you know, get ingress nginx out there um, and define a deployment, a service, and a and an ingress object for your for your application. And then you know, get get two or three different services out there. And have them talk to one another, right? So that's so that's the first step, right? I you get an ingress controller, you get those things going. Now, the next step for me, right, is one of those things that Kubernetes provides is an, uh, that that knowability, right? Understanding what's going on. And so a service like uh, Prometheus piping metrics to Grafana is really helpful from my perspective as you're getting started, right? Because they're you know, Grafana allows you to visualize those metrics and you can use a tool like like Node Exporter to get the container metrics and really easily start to see what's going on out there from an actual compute perspective, right? So I've got my applications orchestrated and running and now I'm seeing what's going on with them with Prometheus and Grafana. And um, that's, you know, that's the place that you can start to build from because you can build, you know, get your services exporting additional metrics. You can... Um, you can deploy new services out there. You can start to start to add things to your cluster, and then and then the the next question after that, to me, depends on where you're going, right? Maybe maybe you you're security conscious. And, well, we should talk about security as a whole other thing, right? <laughs> but but if you're security conscious, right, you have to start thinking about you know your your runtime security. So maybe you, you deploy a product out there like you know. Falco or Tetragon is a new one from from uh, Isovalent that that was released as open source, right? That that starts to understand what's going on in the um, on the note on the runtime of the node, uh, and maybe you uh, or you know there's a whole like category of like have you ever thought about seccomp policies in your containerized applications? Which is you know if you're security conscious in your in your deployment, you have to think about those sorts of things, right? So. Um, and, and you have to think about it early because you can't just like if if you are at all security conscious, right? You could like Kubernetes provides you with a really easy foot gun of saying, oh yeah, here I've got my containers running out here, but at the same, oh yeah, it just created a really easy way to run everything as root and open up a bunch of security holes, right? So so there that's that's one path you might have to take early on in your kubernetes implementation right and it's it's one of the things that some of the kubernetes providers are are offering as their um you know as their real advantage to say yeah we we've really we've thought about this for applications and we we have this set of solutions for securing a container runtime right so that's one path for starting out on kubernetes and and you know, the next, you know, after you've got a bunch of applications out there, you have to think about how you're going to manage the lifecycle, right? And, and their configuration management. So you've got to pick a tool that is doing that for you. Now, if, you, if you're just starting out, uh, you know, using Customize is great. I, I think Helm is honestly a great place to start for applications that are, um, I just think it's, for me, Helm is just so easy in terms of taking those base Kubernetes resources of, you know, you know the this, the standard starting point ingress service and a deployment and orchestrating that across multiple environments 
right? To say, okay, here are my values for my dev cluster. Here are my values for the for the prod cluster, right? And uh, that that would that would be the next place I would go. Whether it's whether it's Helm or customize, you know, something like that to make to manage the de the declarative state of your application, right? That's that's a that's a path that you go down to say, okay, yes, I can say here's what's running in dev, here's what's running in prod, and I can see that in a repository, right? That's that is an early question that you want to be able to answer because, um, and, and you could if you want to start this with just a set of manifests in a repository, at you know that's a great place to start as well. You just have to understand that, uh, you know, there's certain things that manifests in a repository and kubectl applying them aren't going to do for you, right? Re removal of resources and, you know, updating certain fields might not be possible with just a kubectl apply. So there's, um, there's certain restrictions there that you have to understand. Um, and then, you know, the, the next thing you have to think about is, you know, Within that that management process is how are you um, how are you managing those updates right Are you you have your container you've built your application and you know when you start with Docker you've uh, you've built to latest and you've pushed the latest tag to your repository you, you have to answer the question of how am I going to understand you know what's running in Dev versus what's running in Prod right e Even for a small team hopefully you have you know you probably have a, a Dev or a staging environment and then a production environment so you know, how do you want to tag those images that you're building? Um, you know, you can start by, you know, tagging with build numbers and your whatever your build system is, or you can, you know, you can tag with a, a hash and then, you know, the, the container image has a hash when you push it to the repository and then you can like shift a tag onto that hash. Or you can deploy the image hash directly. So every, every container image has a SHA-256 hash and uh, what, uh, what the security conscious folks are saying these days is you want to deploy exactly that, you know, SHA-256 of your image into your cluster because that's the way that you know exactly what, what you're running out there rather than using a tag. Mm -hmm. I, that's not where I would start. I would start with, <laughs> I would start with tagging with a build number and then potentially adding another tag if you want to, or, uh, you know, depending on your uh, implementation, what you can do on those those tags, whether you can, you know, add an annotation or something like that. Um, you, you can just append a dev tag onto one of your, uh, one of your image. And then when you push to prod, just push that prod tag onto that image number as well. So that's, that's another way you can do it, but you, you need some way to manage that, you know, versioning life cycle of the set of applications you've pushed out to your cluster. Mm -hmm. Great. A related question, uh, as an individual, uh, maybe an engineer, is interested in learning Kubernetes, maybe not at their current job, but they want to learn it to extend, extend their uh, career options. How can, how should an individual get started, especially if they don't have access to an employer who's paying them to learn Kubernetes <laughs> on the job? <laughs> yeah. Or, or someone that's paying their cloud bills, right? You know, you, right. you know, that's, that's a, that's a dangerous one. Um, you know, Kubernetes is so accessible for people on a local development machine these days. I use the Kalima project on my MacBook. Um, they have M1 support, which is great. Um, and there, there's just there's a bunch of projects that are out there that make it really easy to run Kubernetes on your own machine, and with with a bunch of great resources out there in the community to to get started with that. Whether it's Kind or Microcates or like I said, Kalima does that. Uh, Minikube, uh, you know. Uh, that's that's honestly where I would start if I was starting today is, you know, get Kubernetes running there, you know, figure out what little applications I want to run or even just, you know, 
get a cluster up, put an ingress controller on it, and put you know put some metrics on it so you can see what's going on, and then you know deploy your deploy a you know a hello world in whatever language you like to use, and hit it a few times and see what that looks like, right? And then and then start to build on top of that, right? Once you once you have an implementation, you know, a Kubernetes that works on your machine, yeah, maybe it's just a single node. But what I found, what I found these days is that I I reason about nodes way less, right? Kubernetes makes that so easy to think about the distributed nature that, like, yes, there are problems where you have to know where the nodes are and you have to know whether your application is distributed across, you know, availability availability groups and things like that, but um, availability zones. But the for the getting started use case, a, a single node on your machine where you can deploy a couple applications is a great starting point. And I would encourage people that are just starting to learn about that to to pick one that that uh, is easy for you. Like you can get into a bunch of complexity on these local implementations, and and also you can avoid it, right? And what I would say is. Avoid that complexity as much as possible. Get images working. Get images up and running, and and see what that looks like. See what it looks like to make kube cuddle calls. See what it looks like to Helm install and Helm upgrade and Helm, Helm uninstall, right? And those types of things get you comfortable with Kubernetes and get you comfortable with working with the API. And then you can you can build on top of that when you know as you as those needs arise, right? You, once you have that comfort level with the API, then you can you know go and deploy more complicated applications and you know mm-hmm. get you know get a cloud provider and and get get going <laughs> with that right good advice well i don't think we've covered anywhere close to all the topics on about kubernetes uh but we've talked for close to an hour three quarters of an hour is there anything important that i should should have asked that i didn't or or anything that you think that we should uh, be sure to cover before we close you know, I, I would be remiss uh, if we didn't just talk about the the level of security that it's it's really important to understand that um, that there are layers of security that are important when it comes to any uh, Kubernetes deployment, right? And you you have to understand the surface area, the the attack vectors that are possible in your Kubernetes environment, right? You're ex- you're exposing an API that if someone gets access to and can submit an authenticated request that gets authorized and run, you know, they can run uh, privileged containers, you know, run something as root on a node of your environment. So you have to make sure that you're, applica- that you're running, you know, secure versions of the Kubernetes API server, right? There was a number of Kubernetes versions back. There was that uh, pod exec bug that allowed, you know, anyone to submit that pod exec request against the API server. So you have to be aware of that surface area. You have to be aware of your image surface area, right? That's that's one of the things where there's been a ton of investment lately in terms of understanding, you know, de, you know, delivering s bombs with a project like uh, Gripe is a great project because it can you build your container image and then Gripe can figure out if there's any CVEs in your in that container image and it'll print that out for you. And there's a tool in that in that ecosystem as well that can generate the SBOM for you and de- deliver it on with your application. Now, and then there's been all this work recently with uh, with SigStore and the projects around that, around uh, signing container images and ensuring that appropriately signed images are running in your in your Kubernetes clusters. And so that's you know that's one set of problems is image security. 
And then there's another set of problems of node level security, right? What kernel version are you running? You know, th these are problems that we have in the EC2 space that remain problems. It's just far easier in a Kubernetes environment to say, I'm going to remove a node and I, and maybe I'm even labeled that node with the kernel version that I'm running. So I can query that and I can remove those nodes and, and spin up new nodes on a patched kernel and all that. Um, but all there's all of that service area that you have to understand and you have to, you know, you have to make sure that you're adequately planning for the risk uh, across all of those layers. Uh, there's, there's a ton of interesting work going on you know, across the different layers of this, right? Like I said, uh, SigStore and those projects have gotten a lot of buzz lately, but there's also really cool stuff going on at the kernel level in terms of securing that um, that communication between the, you know, the application runtime and the actual, you know, node kernel that you're running on. So if you're getting started with Kubernetes, like we, we had an earlier conversation, just don't run your containers as root on Kubernetes. Like that's a great starting point, <laughs> right? And I would be remiss without just saying that uh, mm -hmm. on, this, on this episode. Nice. Uh, if people are interested, if they have questions, uh, are you available for inquiry? Uh, oh, absolutely. For hire? <laughs> <laughs> all, all of the above, yeah. So uh, I'll, I'll send my Twitter handle, jmcshane, and uh, you know, love interacting with the Kubernetes community on Twitter. There is a community, there is a community on Twitter now as well. That that's great. There's there's a bunch of great people in there. Um, I'm in the the Hangops Slack, uh, which is a great a great Slack. There's a lot of community. There's a lot of conversation there. And then, as you said, right? I um, I work for a consulting firm, Superorbital. We do Kubernetes training uh, as one of our main offerings, as well as uh, consulting. Um, and you know, we we have a bunch of people who are really, you know, our focus is to bring on uh, T-shaped engineers. Each one of our people has like a, a an area that they're really strong in. And so, you know, you've got if you've got an interesting Kubernetes problem. Um, we probably have somebody who's who's uh, thought about it deeply and um, and has uh, has worked with the community on it. I think that's that's one of the biggest things about the the Kubernetes ecosystem is that yes, there is all this complexity. It's it's somewhat fractured into lots of different small communities, but there's really great information out out there. And if you get to know the folks that are there, you get to you interact over Slack or over Twi Twitter or Discord or something like that. You can you can get great information, you can get great advice about getting started, and you can find, you can meet awesome people, uh, which is how I met you. So that's awesome. been great. <laughs> <laughs> and is the, uh, is your training, is it, is it virtual or it's all on location? So our training offerings are, they're virtual and they're, they're classroom based. It's a virtual classroom that we offer. So it's, it's not like uh, ad hoc, but rather you would, uh, you would come into a classroom and interact with an instructor and do things hands-on. Um, that's one of our, yeah, that's one of the key tenants of our training offering is we make sure that people, you know, get hands-on with the, with the tools and technologies and work with things that we've, we've been, we teach about and we kind of go back and forth between a lecture and a lab and, and make sure that's something they have, they get hands-on with. Great. Well, if you're listening and you're interested in Kubernetes now and maybe you need some training on the topic, uh, you have the resources now. Thanks so much, James, for coming on. I really appreciate it. It's been a, an educational and fascinating topic. Uh, so I, I appreciate uh, you taking the time. And uh, I suppose we'll stay in touch. And uh, yeah, thanks a lot. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Jonathan. It was, this is a wonderful conversation. I really appreciate uh, yeah, taking the time today to talk about Kubernetes. Great. 